the campus of Gonzaga University in Spokane, Washington. You're listening to the G Suite Podcast, where we discuss all things Zag business. Episode 3. Kelsey Carlston is an assistant professor of economics at Gonzaga. Her research is primarily on the causes and consequences of intergenerational economic mobility. She is currently studying the health consequences of intergenerational mobility in a research project funded by the National Institutes of Health. Dr. Carlston discusses her journey through economic theory and her NIH project. But well, I appreciate you being here. Welcome to the podcast. Oh, thank you. Um, and uh, super exciting stuff right now. Um, so I think... Where, where I'd like to start, and for, for folks listening, we have Kelsey Carlston. She's an assistant professor of economics here at, at Gonzaga. And what we call one of our, our sh- rising stars, I think, in the business school. <laughs> um, and, and a super awesome individual to be. To be. So um, I, lo- I love, let's, let's get a little background on you first. Um, and, and what brought you to Gonzaga. Maybe, maybe take us, because I think you have a pretty cool story. I've heard bits and pieces of it. Um, but kind of take us through your your journey of it be, becoming an economist and then different kind of thoughts that you've followed or, I guess, schools of thought um, along the way. So. Sure. So um, I grew up in southwestern Virginia in the Appalachian Mountains. So if you know Eddie Brody from Virginia, you probably know them from the other part of Virginia. I grew up in a pretty small town. And then I went to uh, Virginia Tech for my undergraduate degree. And well, I started the, in- What's the town called? Sorry, if you don't mind me asking. Uh, the, the town is Christiansburg, Virginia. Okay, so continue. Sorry, I'm gonna, I'm gonna Google it. Go ahead. <laughs> uh, so I went to, uh, it's right near Virginia Tech, actually. I grew up pretty close. Um, so I started in chemistry and I did like a year, year and a half in chemistry. And what I learned pretty quickly is that I don't think chemicals are very interesting, but I think people are super interesting. And so, um, you know, I took an economics class and immediately thought, like, this is what I want. You know, you're looking at people and trying to explain their behavior with math and numbers. And that was like super, super cool to me. Um, So ended up switching to chemistry and then adding on statistics as well. Because uh, Sorry, switching to economics and adding on statistics as well, uh, because statistics is super important for helping you uh, do economics uh, and practices. Um, So then when I graduated from Virginia Tech, I first got an internship that turned into a job at Allianz Global Assistance, which Allianz is one of the biggest insurance companies in the world. And in the U.S., they have life insurance and travel insurance. So I was on the travel insurance side. Uh, And the travel insurance uh, so if you ever go onto Delta or Orbitz or something and buy a plane ticket and they have a little box that says, do you want to buy travel insurance? And when you click no, it pops up a big red X and says, like, are you sure you don't? You might, you know, have really cat- catastrophic things happen if you uh, don't buy travel insurance. The red X, that was like what my team did was figuring out, you know, whether so it's the, the red X, the red shield. The, yeah, it's like this no, I do not want to protect myself on the trip. Like some kind of comment, like, like statement like that to really kind of get me. But okay, that's cool. Okay, so yeah, okay. Yeah, exactly. So, so I worked um, in the marketing 
uh, department there. And it just came clear pretty quickly that uh, travel insurance is a little bit of a scam and, uh, you know, being in that position wasn't something that I enjoyed. Uh, so then I moved to uh, urban planning uh, consulting company in Southern California. And I worked there for about a year and that was uh, pretty cool because we were doing uh, regional economic reports to help inform cities about what kinds of things they should do when they're planning for their future um, zoning laws and uh, specific plans and things like that. So uh, what moving to uh, California kind of taught me was a few things that got me really interested into pursuing economics further. So, uh, you know, growing up in the Appalachian Mountains was really different from living in Orange County. Uh, the kinds of, I mean, the amount of money that people made on average, the kinds of things people did for fun, uh, the kinds of aspirations that people had for their future and their careers were super different from uh, what I grew up around. And so that kind of inequality across space, seeing how different the experience of Americans is, depending on where you live, uh, made me decide, you know, this is something that I need to look at more. This is something that I want to understand and figure out. And so I applied to graduate school, um, specifically wanting to study inequality, and I ended up at the University of Utah. Um, so... Yeah. Yeah, and there I studied intergenerational economic mobility in the end, which I think is a huge difference there. Um, and did you have a, 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 at different times in your journey through econ, and, and this is Dr. Herzog uh, relaying information to me like 18 months ago or whatever, whenever you interviewed, uh, and it's, it's clearly beyond my wheelhouse, but, you know, at times you you were, were kind of gravitated towards maybe a more liberal uh school of thought and other times more conservative school of thought and is that is that accurate or did her yeah it? so when i was uh, virginia tech is a very uh we call it neoliberal and now i think that's a word that's actually entered the common parlance but it's mm -hmm. uh pretty much saying like free market is good anything that uh is not perfect about the free market we can fix but we shouldn't inter intervene any beyond that that's what the school of thought is at Virginia Tech for the most part. And um, the one of my favorite faculty members who was kind of a mentor, he was a Milton Friedman look-alike and think-alike. It was really funny to see how uh, much this guy, you know, worshiped Milton Friedman and uh, spread his ideas. And so that was what I was interested in in uh, undergraduate, uh, when I was an undergraduate. And uh, yeah, so I think what appealed to me was the idea that we can explain what people do uh, through these economic theories. And what, uh, and I think even uh, through my time when I was working, I was still pretty conservative in the economic sense. I think, uh, you know, I, I separate, uh, fiscally conservative and socially conservative. And of course I had different views there, but um, then the University of Utah, what I was not aware of when I agreed to go, I mean, honestly, a big part of the reason I wanted to go to Utah was I like the mountains and hiking and skiing and biking and all that. So uh, it sounded like a pretty cool place to be for five years. 
and I wasn't aware that the University of Utah is a very different kind of program and they call it heterodox. So pretty much whatever the mainstream thought is, Utah welcomes all the other kinds of thoughts. And so I think this kind of pluralism is very important for most fields. And I think in a lot of fields, uh, people who think differently are often stunned. But what you see at the University of Utah, I mean, it started in the 50s, uh, welcoming other kinds of thinkers like Marxists uh, and then, you know, statisticians. They started having Bayesian stat statisticians, which uh, and then thinking about um, macroeconomics in a very different way uh, compared to what people were thinking of before. And a lot of these things that today are really big fields in economics, 30 years ago would have been thought of as heterodox. So like behavioral economics, this idea that maybe people don't act rationally all of the time um, was 30 years ago, something that was totally not accepted in the mainstream, but was something people were talking about at Utah. Uh, or in other heterodox departments. Um, the 2008 financial crisis, when so many economists kind of got knocked on their butts, you know, saying, oh, we apparently our models don't work for this. Um, the University of Utah, people were looking at the economy in ways that fit better with the 2008 financial crisis. And so um, it's a it is different, but also I don't think, I think that there's a lot to learn, even if you, like, I wouldn't call myself a Marxist economist, but there's a lot to learn if you read some of these different ways of thinking. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, it's it's a pretty fascinating field. Um, you mentioned Milton Friedman. Now, true true story, Carlson, I don't know if, if you knew this. Um, maybe you heard, maybe I told you like eight times in the hall or something like that, but. <laughs> Uh, so go back to the eighties before we even had Jepson. Dean Anderson is a, a grad student and, and Dean Barnes was, was re relatively new to the role. I mean, maybe 10 years in, um, and, uh, for him, that's relatively for his tenure, that's relatively early on. Um, and he, he wanted to make a splash. And so I think he took a number of trips down to Stanford, I think at that time, Friedman had moved from Chicago to, was it Hoover? I don't maybe he's at the Hoover Institute. He did something at Stanford uh, towards the end of his career um, and literally sat outside his office and was nice to his secretary, like multiple trips. They had to, he would fly privately uh, and come up and uh, uh, speak at our economic symposium. We have one of those coming up in the spring semester here. Um, I want to say Stiegler. Is that, is, that a, is that a Chicago economist, maybe? Does that sound right? I, I yeah. don't know where it is. Is there Stiegler? So this, is, uh, this is way out of my wheelhouse, so I apologize for my ignorance. He came up a couple years after him. But here's the point of the story. They fly Friedman up, uh, and I think he did stay the night. Uh, but Dean Anderson's uh, role as a graduate assistant was, was bartender and basically to keep Milton Friedman uh giving him whatever he wanted to and keep him, uh, keep his glass so long as he uh, was interested uh, a full. So he's got some, he's got some pretty good stories about that. I don't, I don't want to, you know, try to ruin him here, but um, fascinating, fascinating group. Um, I'll have to ask uh, Dean Anderson about that. Yeah, definitely, definitely. And I, and I want to get this out on the table. See, the first time I met you, I, I could sense greatness. And I think I know why now, because my people are from Appalachia as well. Um, oh, really? Other side, Kentucky, you know, kind of somewhere in Kentucky. I've never been. I've never even met any of them. But 
Uh, I remember my grandfather was always, always proud of that. So um, um, I guess it's a pretty big area, but now hey, you're kind of close. I'm looking at the map. You're not too far from Kentucky. We'll jump over to West Virginia, you know, and McPherson's from uh, Morgantown. Oh yeah. So yeah, but anyway, that's not what we're here to talk about today. So um, you mentioned, so you, you took this journey and um, I guess you go to Utah, you go on the market. How do you, how do you end up at, at Gonzaga of all places in, in, in sleepy Spokane, Washington? Well, I, uh, when I was applying for a job, I mean, in general, if you're an econ PhD student, you go on the job market, the median number of places that people apply is 180, 180 applications. So it's the exact opposite in accounting. It's so oh, really? like, yeah, it's like, yeah, there are 20 jobs for 10 applicants kind of deal. Like, go ahead. Okay. Yeah. So, uh, Generally, people send out uh, applications to everywhere, but I had a postdoc. I, I actually had two postdocs that were pretty sure things, at least one of them was going to come through. So I figured I would only apply to places that I was really interested in going. Uh, and so part of that was, you know, where could I see myself long term? What are the values of the school? Things like that. And I think, you know, I looked up Spokane and it looked really beautiful. You know, the first thing you see, if you look at images, is the waterfall going through downtown. I thought, oh, that sounds nice. And I looked at the school and it seemed really interesting. I didn't really know much about Jesuits, but, you know, I looked at that a little bit. Oh, that sounds like, um, you know, these kinds of values are something that uh, interests me. And so uh, I applied and then got the interview. And in the interview, I mean, when I was interviewing for doing my first round interviews, I had COVID and it was all on Zoom. So it was, you know, I wasn't contaminating anybody, but I had really bad brain fog. And so it was kind of a rough, rough time. But the people who were interviewing me here, who are now my coworkers, were all super friendly and kind. And it was a very easy thing to talk about. Uh, you know, what their questions were, answering their questions, asking my questions. There were all kinds of things that just felt like it was super right. And uh, so I think the big thing is like, you know, staying out West, being somewhere where I can focus on uh, research and teaching and, you know, having a school that's supportive of the kinds of research that I like to do, which is uh, socially impactful. Yeah. Awesome. And I, and I think the way, I mean, that's, that aligns right with our mission and what we try to do here. And uh, um, we're, we're glad we're glad you chose us at the end of the day. Um, tell me a little bit about this grant you have. Uh, and I, this again, well, out of my wheelhouse, so I'll let you take it over. But it sounds like it can be pretty exciting stuff. Yeah, so uh, the grant that I got is a diversity supplement for the Center uh, for Demography and Health of Aging at the University of Wisconsin. So originally those postdocs that I had mentioned, um, the head of the Center for Demography and Health of Aging at Wisconsin reached out to me and he said, it sounds like your research is uh, really well aligned with the research that we do at this center. And if you meet these criteria for diversity, then we could bring you on as a postdoc so you could work with us. And um, focus on the research that you're doing. And it's a good way to get some early career experience in research and kickstart start your research career. Uh, so we applied for that. 
I, I meet the diversity criteria partly because of where I grew up. It's a really poor area and, you know, meets the criteria for being from somewhere that is underrepresented in uh, academia. And then also neither of my parents graduated college. I'm a first generation student. And so, oh. um, you know, that's not a super common thing when you're looking at the upper echelons of academia. And so they're trying to support that. So uh, I got the postdoc, but it was after I had accepted the job here at Gonzaga. So then we talked to the people who ran the grant program and they said that we could turn it into early career money. And so this way I can, I got some course releases so that I can focus on my research in the first two years and then some summer money so that I can, um, you know, have some support for doing this research over the summer. Uh, so the goal of the research that I'm doing for this grant is to study how intergenerational mobility, both at the individual level and the local level, affects health outcomes. So it fits into this uh, research area called social determinants of health. So pretty much what this is, is uh, your income is really strongly related to health outcomes, how long you live, how healthy you are while you're alive, things like that. And there's a lot of reasons for it. So partly, you know, if you have more income, you can exercise and eat more healthily and avoid toxins and bad working conditions and things like that. But there's also a lot of other things going on that aren't explained by those things. Like even if your income goes from 150,000 a year, which is pretty high to 200,000 a year, you see health improvements. So it's not just about your material needs. There's also other things going on. Um, so your kind of stress levels from being a uh, low status, also affect your health outcomes in ways that we're kind of just starting to understand. And so my thinking is, okay, uh, if you have, uh, so intergenerational economic mobility is whether you do better than your parents did, whether your income rank is higher than your parents was, what is your ability to move up? And in the US, we like to think that we have very high intergenerational economic mobility. If you work hard, you can get ahead. Um, and the level to which, that, which that's true really depends on where you grow up. So if you grow up in the South, it's very unlikely that if you were poor, you're going to increase your uh, status. Whereas if you grow up in like the Midwest, um, your ability to increase your status is much greater. Uh, so people have studied how intergenerational economic mobility affects health at the individual level and at the local level. But of course, those would be related. And so um, my thinking is I want to see where the effects really come in. And so based on the uh, initial results, uh, you kind of see that moving up uh, economically is actually bad for your health. And part of the reasons is like if you're working that hard, there's probably a lot of stress going on with that. Um, if you most people who experience upward mobility also are moving uh, geographically. So they move away from where they grew up and this disconnects you from the social networks that you had. You're in a new area. And so there's a lot of uh, stress that comes along with that. So um, at the individual level, mobility actually isn't great for your health. But when you live in an area that has a lot of opportunity and has a lot of people who are moving up, that's good for your health. So, um, I'm just kind of exploring these relationships more and trying to see what's going on there. Um, yeah, and it's a pretty fun project. Is uh, the 
data that we're using to get at these questions is huge. Uh, so I'm looking at full count U.S. censuses from the early 1900s. So I have a line for each person, uh, each male in the U.S. who's between the ages of 20 and 40. So that's millions and millions of people. And then I'm looking at social security data and then some really huge uh, surveys on health that have been going on for 20 or 30 years. So there's a, a lot of information out there and it's pretty fun to be able to explore that. So can you like go in and search like your great grandparents or something like that? Just... Yeah. So um, if anybody who wants to up until actually they just released the 1950 full count census. Mm -hmm. So um, some people are digitizing it and you can, but they, when they digitize it, usually they don't allow you to, search name. So what you have to do is you have to find the address and you can go find, you can see the original ledgers where, you know, somebody's talking to your great grandparents and they're asking them, okay, what's your job? Uh, how much, what's your income? What's your education level? And you can find the original sources for that. So usually when people present on this data in conferences or something, they'll pull up the house that they live at and they can say the person who lived in my house a hundred years ago, uh, had these attributes. That's pretty cool. Fascinating. I'm, I'm curious. I'm curious, you know, if like if my house, which is pretty middle of the road for Spokane, if it was like a professional or a blue collar work, I, I'd, I'd be curious to know. So how, how things change, but um, very, very cool. So, and how long's the, the grant? Is there a timeline on it or is it, um, yeah, so the grant is two years long. Um, so it was supposed to end next spring, but in the first semester that I was at Gonzaga, we were unable to find any adjuncts to take some of my classes. So we actually moved it. So now it's going to be from this spring to fall of 2024. Okay, so you got an extension on that. Mm -hmm. Interesting. And it's been a super great opportunity uh, to attend conferences and network with people that I never would have come in contact with. So uh, the person who had reached out to me at Wisconsin uh, has introduced me to all kinds of people at the University of Wisconsin, which is a really excellent school. They have all kinds of people doing really cool things in this area. And then also one of his uh, co-authors is at Berkeley. And so I've also been connected to a lot of people at Berkeley. and people at the census. So it's really opened up a lot of doors that I never would have been able to get into if I hadn't had this opportunity. Yeah, it's it's crazy. And when I first started as a faculty member, I was working with an economist, um, Dan Friesner, he was here and he's actually now going to be the, uh, he's at North Dakota State, he's an associate dean, but he's going to be the dean at, I'm, I'm misplacing the name, um, but it's a small private school in the Midwest. Uh, one of the many, um, but he was like, hey, we need some data. And I was able, I literally just found an IR, a number for the IRS uh, online called, somebody answered. I was like, hey, this is Frank, you know, or whatever. And literally I was just like, here's what I need. And he pulled all sorts of tax return data, uh, sent, sent it to me in a bunch of you know, zipped I guess they're ultimately Excel spreadsheets, but uh, it, it's crazy how, you know, how, how, what, who you can have access to and how that works out um, when you actually just reach out and meet some yeah. folks. They start to... The government has all kinds of crazy data. Oh, I was starting a project during grad school on 
uh, mining and oil drilling. Okay. I wanted this oil data from the federal government, and I can't remember which department it was, but they said, oh, if you want this data, uh, email this person. So I emailed that person. He said, okay, well, what's your address? So I sent him my address, and he mailed me through the United States Postal Service some DVDs with data on it, and it was, you know, <laughs> put together 20 years ago. It was pretty funny. Wow. I'm just glad he didn't send me a floppy disk or something. Nah, no kidding. <laughs> yeah, it'd be a lot of floppy disks. I don't think they had much. Yeah. Right. Well, crazy. So you, so what classes are you teaching on Zega? I teach uh, principles of microeconomics and regression analysis. Okay. Perfect. So they're not anybody's favorite classes, but I think that at the end of the day, they're pretty important to understand. And, uh, you know, as soon as you start applying these concepts, to things that you care about, they end up, uh, being really useful. And so one of my favorite parts of teaching regression analysis is I have students choose their own topics for their final project. And then they get to find the data and figure out what method is analysis is best for looking at it. And so they choose all kinds of really, really cool projects. Uh, this last semester I had a bunch on baseball and the recent changes in the rules for baseball to try to make the game more interesting. Yes. Um, and so wait, I have uh, what, what were some of the did you get did you run some some analysis on that and what, what was the conclusion or the um because i'm, I'm uh, fast because the game goes a lot faster now yeah the game is definitely a lot shorter um so one of the ones actually from the fall semester was another rule change so they had to change the pitch clock which is the biggest change right. but another rule change was uh the players are not allowed to do a defensive shift uh to be past a certain point uh -huh. and so the student looked at whether the shift was actually going to make baseball more interesting or go faster and he kind of found that um the shift wasn't going to make the new rules about the shift wasn't going to make a big difference but um the pitch clock definitely has made things faster i didn't i didn't know that because yeah, I guess like last year in the last couple of years there would be these crazy shifts like everybody would be like on one side and so there, that makes sense because you don't you don't see that anymore. So much. I, I here, here's one bummer on the game going faster because they usually stop beer sales uh, in the seventh inning, and the seventh inning creeps up on you faster than you realize it. So um, the one rule I don't like, though, I, those two rules sound good. The one rule I don't like is um, they put up they put a, a, a person on second uh, in the tenth inning, so you could start out with someone on second base. Um, I didn't know that. Yeah, it kind of kind of changes the, the trajectory of the game. But yeah, that's a weird Nobody asked me, uh, Dr. Carlson. <laughs> you can only imagine. So that's cool. I, I agree on the, the regression is I, I probably, and again, I'm not an economist, but one of the more important classes in the business school, just with where things are going and in all areas and the use of tech and analytics and, and things like that. So, mm -hmm. so you had, you've had, you finished a year at Gonzaga. Uh -huh. um, what at this point? Now it's still early, but uh, what's what? What is what? Are you, where have you been pleasantly surprised with Gonzaga and Spokane? What what could you change uh, if given a magic wand? Like your your favorite or least favorite part, I guess. And you can always you can always. Okay. Skip. I think as far as the teaching aspect, the 
one of the things that has been most fun is that the students are just really engaged in the campus community and really interested in what's going on in the world around them. So uh, when I was teaching at the University of Utah, there were a lot of non-traditional students that had full-time jobs and stuff, and they were there to, you know, they wanted to get to the job, uh, you know, be able to get a better job or move up in the position that they were at. And so that was what they were there for. Where I find a lot of the students at Gonzaga are really interested in figuring out what's going on that may not even be relevant to a position they'll have in the future, but they're thinking about, okay, well, what, do we, what does it mean about climate change? What does it mean about inequality and those kinds of things, which um, is pretty cool. Uh, I was really, I'm very impressed, you know, when I uh, start the regression analysis class on the first day, I say, okay, well, what kinds of uh, examples are you guys interested in? What kinds of things do you want to learn more about through the examples we use in class? And I was kind of expecting, you know, sports or movies or music or, you know, things that are pretty fun. And then students come in, well, I want to learn more about homelessness and I want to learn more about um, the healthcare system. It's like, what kind of 22 year old is like, I want to learn more about the healthcare system. It's pretty cool. That is really cool. Wow. Yeah, interesting. Um, um. Okay, so that's a, that's a good, that's a positive. Any any anything you could change? I, I actually, let me. I, I know one. I'll, I'll give you one. We okay. need a locker room in Jepson, right? Where we can store yeah. our when you pedal in. All the, yeah. Yeah, we need a shower so that when I come that's... to school and I'm super sweaty from my uphill bike ride, <laughs> I don't have to go to class looking disgusting. Yeah, no, and it's it's so true. And I, a lot of people like to jog at lunch or whatever mm -hmm. and i think we have the space downstairs like we just got to find the right donor uh, yeah. yeah put their name on it <laughs> you know the, the so and so faculty and staff locker room i guess i don't know we'll see but uh very very cool um there's a lot of um well, actually, let me, I'm going to jump to a kind of a new topic here. Uh, there was a while, uh, I guess it was probably about a month or two ago, you and I and some other folks uh, got to have dinner with a gentleman named uh, Jeff Kumer, um, and he was the head of tax policy at Deloitte. Um, and I, I missed kind of some of the discussion. It might have been the, my second Negroni or whatever I was drinking. I was focused on other things. But I felt like you guys had some pretty good conversation towards the end of that. Um, and, and I think he, my guess would be, you know, he had a very business oriented mindset when it came to policy stuff. Um, and some of your comments were more social oriented. Do you, do you remember that at all? Do you remember like a, what we guys, what you guys chatted about and kind of explain what the, what the. Yeah. So at the, it was pretty fun talking to him because I do like, my impression is he's a Republican and he's uh, pretty, you know, pro-business and that kind of thing, which, uh, but he also, you know, uh, is very intelligent and knows what he's talking about and is very informed about everything that's going on. And so my questions were kind of around, uh, you know, I started with the baseline because, you know, you never know with some people, but I was like, 
inequality is a problem, right? And he said, yeah, yeah, the inequality is pretty, it's a pretty big problem in the US right now. And then the question is from that starting point, how do you approach uh, what's going on in different ways? And so because he's a tax policy expert, I was interested in how much he thinks we need to change how much role of a role tax policy can play in redistribution. Yeah. And he kind of, he said, well, U.S. actually, once you uh, account for all of the transfers that we do, we have a very progressive tax system, which by what comparison, what metric, right. I don't know. I think that uh, he may be looking at different data than I am, but I, you know, get his point of, you know, it's not like we are taxing the poor much more than the rich or anything. It is the rich are paying more taxes than anybody else. But uh, he seemed not to believe that uh, tax policy is where we should do redistribution or where we should fix the inequality problem. And I agree with him. I think that there's better places to look than that. Uh, yeah, I can see that. I mean, I, you know, of course, here's my, my, my tax CPA perspective on it. And we will dabble a little bit in our classes into policy, just more to the why. It helps you understand all the the crazy details that you're that you're trying to figure out but um one thing i would note and and i don't know if this was a part of your your conversation but there's a, an area of tax it's the, the payroll tax social security and medicare that's often left out of a lot conveniently left out of discussions for in some some circumstances but it's in fact a, a regressive tax right mm -hmm. so the, the lower earners are, are getting, you know, if you're self-employed, it's 15.3% uh, on your earlier dollars. And then, you know, once you hit a, a cap and that's index for inflation, it's, you know, I don't know where it is, it's 163,000, I think last year, I remember off the top of my head, um, it drops. Um, so it's like, you know, it can be from 7.65 to 15.3%. And then once you hit that, that level, it drops to, um, um, just a little under two and a half percent. Um, <laughs> so that's when you hear like Warren Buffett always saying, you know, I, I pay less taxes than my my uh, my secretary. That's probably the driver there. I haven't looked into the details of that comment, but I don't know if that was part of your conversation or if you're, I'm sure you were aware of that knowing what you know, but um, it's an interesting, interesting debate and discussion for sure. But I'm with you. I would go ahead. We're going to say something. I think that that kind of depends on the way that you look at Social Security and Medicare. So some people are looking at Social Security as this is a tax that you pay to support, you know, older Americans. And I don't think that that's the way that the program was set up. And the way that it's supposed to be thought about is this is forced savings for your retirement uh, that uh, where the savings are invested into U.S. bonds. So in the end, however much you pay in reflects what you get out when you retire. So in some cases, it may be regressive, but also, um, you know, at the end of the day, you're going to be getting money out of Social Security. And if you don't pay into Social Security at all, you don't get Social Security checks when you retire, unless yeah. you were in that first cohort of people who retired in 1940 or whatever it was. 
yeah, the first crew, yeah, for sure. Yeah, I've also heard it described as a massive, the, the biggest Ponzi scheme ever uh, concocted, right? Because, you know, we're, we're taking out of our paychecks to pay my dad, who I played pickleball with this morning, right? He says, thank you. Yeah. Yeah, I'm buying lunch kind of thing. So, um, yeah, it's interesting. Uh, I was at a conference in D.C. two weeks ago, three weeks ago for uh, the AICPA. Uh, we always have policy folks. We'll have economists come in and talk to us as well. Um, this this one speaker, this one woman, she represented a group that and she was by far the best speaker. She's absolutely fascinating. She represented a group that that was more or less advocating for more fiscal responsibility at the federal level and not a uh, uh, let's pay off all the debt kind of thing, but more along the lines of how we measure um, our debt liabilities at the federal level um, and how it's inaccurate uh, under GAAP. They don't have to use GAAP, but considering what we know about GAAP or we can make adjustments at the federal level that could better inform I guess congresspersons as well as 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 voters um, on how much debt we have, um, but she said the biggest holder of debt was it's not China or some foreign it's it's the Social Security fund, right? I mean they it's just full of a bunch of IOUs. Uh, so I, again, out of my wheelhouse, but that was a, an interesting comment that that I heard in some of the discussions. So hopefully. Hopefully it's around when we retire, all right? That's all we have to ask for. Let's kick it down the road. Unless global warming gets us or something before that. It's you know, even a, a bigger problem, but but I digress for sure. Um, a lot of talk uh, these days of uh, artificial intelligence, chat GPT, super scary, going to take over. Um, we're not going to have any jobs anymore. And then eventually they're going to, I guess, kill us all. I don't know. Maybe that's a little bit of an overstatement. Um, where do you see in your field uh, the role of, of these new AI tools going forward? And that could be specifically to teaching or your research or even what your students, uh, the graduate from Gonzaga, where they go to work in the fields they go to. Yeah, so I think that just like anything that we uh, have has been introduced to us in the last, I mean, I guess in human history, but I mean, when you look at the field of economics, how much economics changed when computers became so powerful. Uh, you know, it, it definitely changes things, but I think it changes things for the better. So my hope for ChatGPT is it gives us ways to work faster and smarter and better. Uh, but also I think that there's still a lot of room for humans. Um, I was at a, I went to a wedding this, or I was the maid of honor in a wedding this last weekend, and the officiant needed some inspiration for what he was going to say, and so he got it off ChatGPT, and then it sounded pretty good, and he didn't change anything, and that wasn't the right call. It was a very boring uh, ceremony, and there was no jokes. There was nothing special to the couple, and I think that uh, that really drove home to me how much humans have to add because uh, I don't think there's ever going to be a time when AI is going to be able to do that well and to understand what's important to understand what kinds of things um, you know we should be looking into and how we should be thinking about things I don't think AI is ever going to be able to do that I think it is going to make it a lot easier for me to do my research for me to do my teaching I've used teaching to come up with examples and assignments 
uh, and rubrics and all kinds of things, I think that it's been really helpful. And I know my students use it a lot and find it helpful as well. But I also think what my students found this semester when they were working on their final project was it can't do it all. And there were a lot of things that uh, they had to add. They had to add their experience in the class and what they learned uh, that ChatGPT couldn't do for them. So. Yeah, I agree 100 percent. You know, it's it's. I'll look at the field of accounting, you know, spreadsheets coming online and it was like a, or something called Lotus one, two, three, four Excel or something like or Lotus something. I don't know what it was called, but for my era, um, how that changed things. And then, you know, even even Google changing things. Um, then it was data analytics and then RPA. And so, yeah, I, I'm all about embracing it, you know, you can educate yourself about it and see how you can leverage it. I mean, it's certainly going to change how you do things, but hopefully for the the better, right? Spending less time doing data entry, lower level stuff and, and, and more, more time analyzing. Um, I think the problem that you have when you have these really cool new tools that come out is that it becomes really tempting to do the things that are easier rather than the things that are better. And so, I mean, one of the things that I think has, uh, has been using AI for a long time as a little chat box on websites when you need help. And you know, they say, right, well, what's the problem we can help you with? And you tell them, and it's just terrible, but it's so much cheaper for the company. They do it anyways. Right. Uh, or in economics, I think that one of the things that's been a really big problem. Uh, so, okay, a little bit of like history in economics is you had, uh, you know, as economics developed in the early 20th century and then moving on from there, it was, uh, you know, we had a little bit of information about what we were doing, but at the end of the day, we didn't have enough data. We didn't have computing power to really understand what was going on. And so we had a lot of theories that um, were made about the economy uh, and how people interacted with it that when we actually got the computing power and the data to explore what's really going on, we found out a lot of those theories didn't work very well. They didn't match with reality. Right. But what ended up happening is now everybody's saying, well, I've got a ton of data and I got all this computing power. I'm gonna do whatever I can with that. But we don't have a lot of people asking really big questions about what's going on. And actually I've been uh, exploring uh, some of the literature on climate change more uh, recently. And the thing is like you have a small amount of data. I mean, in the grand scheme of things, we don't have that much data to figure out what's gonna be happening 50 years from now. So there aren't very good estimates about how much, like what's gonna happen and how much climate change will cost us or could cost us. And that's because those are such hard questions to answer. And so you have people who are looking 20 years out at small areas, because those are the questions that are easy to answer. But the problem is when we're looking at a problem that's uh, this big, those aren't the right questions to be asking. And I think same thing with the economy, we're looking at whatever we can answer rather than what the uh, questions we really want answered are. Um, and so there's like an analogy of, there's a, per, a drunk guy walking down the street and loses his keys. So he goes back and he just starts doing circle under the street lamp. And somebody walks up and they're like, well, did you lose your keys under the street lamp? And he says, no, but at least they can see here, you know, and. Wow, interesting. Yeah. Kind of what we have going on. 
For sure. Well, I mean, you don't have to look further to, I mean, I saw recently some pretty big insurance companies are no longer going to do new policies in California, right? The risk is is too high, right? Floods, fires, earthquakes, all the above. I mean, it's just, it's getting, getting so crazy. I did, um, you know, I was on the East coast. I think their air has cleaned up, cleaned up a little bit, but, um, you know, last week they had a, a pretty big, uh, some Canadian wildfires that were kind of bearing down, which is super unfortunate. But, you know, we've had that out West for, you know, and when I was growing up, I grew up in Spokane. I don't ever remember it happening, but I would say the last 10 years, it's steadily been more and more to where, you know, you have a couple of days where you can't even go outside. But my point here is that having to hit the East Coast, I think has kind of increased some awareness. You know, we just don't get the, there's just so many more people over there, right? So it's a lot more people feeling direct effects, I think, and hopefully- I've been saying for years that if uh, the U.S. Capitol was in California, we'd be doing a lot more about climate change. Guaranteed, guaranteed, yeah. Although having been there last week, we got to visit uh, some members and and some of their staffers. Uh, It's a a whole nother world on how that place operates for sure. So very, very interesting stuff. Kind of pivoting back to the, um, the the student side of things, and and you know is you know I, you're still relatively new, so maybe you haven't maybe you had some I guess in your principal you got mostly sophomores, and then uh, on the regression side I guess probably juniors right they're taking that early fall junior year is when they're taking it, so I guess this next year some of your students will be graduating uh, and going out, but um, knowing what you know. And what and what these students will learn. What, what's your what's your advice to students as they embark on this a career journey, uh, considering like the the social conscientiousness of of, of Gonzaga students and, and wanting to have a, a impact. What, what do you what do you say to a student? Uh, so there's two big things that I think are important for people to consider as they're going out and based on you know things I did and mistakes I made. Um, one thing is to do something that you can live with yourself doing, even if it means taking a bit more time to find a job or something like that. So as I said, when I was talking about my history of working for the big travel insurance company was I figured out pretty quickly that this product wasn't a product that people should be buying. And when you start thinking about what it means to be selling something that you think is just you know, people spending money and not getting anything out of it, it feels really bad. And so uh, for the last five or six months that I worked at that company, I would come home every day and feel horrible. And I mean, I was in a long-term relationship and that went downhill because I was so unhappy at work and I couldn't compartmentalize that. And I think that thinking about what is important to you uh, is really is something that you need as you go find a job. Um, I mean, I don't think that every job has to be going and changing the world, but doing something that doesn't align with your values will just suck the life out of you. So um, I think that's important. And, you know, if I had taken a little bit more time to look for jobs, uh, I probably would have found something that was a better fit. But instead, you know, I wanted to make sure I was nervous about not getting something and uh, I took kind of the first thing that fell into my lap. Um, 
so that's one side of it. But on the other side, I think uh, you shouldn't discount something just because it isn't immediately fun or exactly what you envisioned for your career. Right. So um, it does, uh, like for me, uh, I'm okay at math. But when I was in college, calculus was really, really hard. And you have to do a lot of that for um, uh, economics and statistics and then coding as well. Like that didn't come easily. Uh, but a lot of people, I see them saying like, oh, well, I'm just really bad at math or I'm really bad at coding. And that I just don't want to do anything to do with that, which you're limiting your opportunities a lot by doing that. And it's kind of the same thing as saying like, oh, I've taken Spanish for one semester and I can't have conversations with people. Like, I'm just so bad at Spanish, which doesn't really make any sense. You know, it's something that takes a lot of time and practice. And the more you do it, the more enjoyable it becomes. Um, so uh, another story I bring up is uh, one of my aunts is a California Environmental Quality Act expert in California, which that's sounds pretty boring and I think it is pretty boring but uh you know this is what she's been doing with her career for 20 or 30 years and now people all across the state are looking at her for uh information about policy you know the California's made some big policy changes and she got called in to uh, weigh in on some of those and when people are doing projects they want her on their project and she loves being you know the expert people look to um, so I think that that's something that you never envision, like, wow, when I grow up, I want to be a policy expert. But as, the more you do it, the more fun it is. And so, you know, for me, like, uh, the more I get involved in the data that I'm using and the models that I'm using, the more fun I think it is. And so, like, uh, I've been chosen, my household has been chosen for the American Community Survey, which is a big census thing they do every year yeah. a few times. And I get really excited about that. Or the most recent one is just yesterday, I got selected to do the survey of consumer sentiment. And uh, very, very exciting. You know, something that, you know, when you get involved enough, you start to really be interested in these things. Right. So I think that don't discount something just because it isn't, you know, I, the first yeah. thing you thought was exciting. You're you're I, you're spot on. You're spot on. I like. I think it was Malcolm Gladwell. He's got his. It's a ten thousand hour rule or a five thousand hour rule. I mean, to do to do something worthwhile, it's going to take some work and some grind, particularly up front. I think before you can get to a level, and I think a lot of times that translates to, you know, you you don't get your perfect job when you when you come out of come out of college. That doesn't mean do anything like a, a travel insurance salesperson. I totally get that. I'm glad that. I've always kind of thought that was a scam and I've never purchased it. So I'm glad that you confirmed that for me today. It makes me feel good. Um, so if you're, if you're traveling internationally, you may want travel insurance. One of my friends worked at the call center there and he would like organize if somebody's in like Nepal and needs to be airlifted somewhere, he would organize the helicopters and things like that. So that was pretty cool. Whoa. But domestically, yeah. I can okay. I can see that. If I go for Everest, I'll get some insurance. Uh, yeah. It, yeah. The other thing about it is, I feel like there's like so many exceptions, you know. And they can. I mean, really, the the when it comes to reimbursement or claims, I guess the power is all on the insurance company yeah. side. It's not like you can. They're doing the the same policies over and over again. But but yeah, I I think that's really 
I think that's spot on. I, I appreciate you sharing that. Um, is, there, is there anything that, I, that I'm not asking here that, that I should be asking of you or, or of, of, you know, what, what am I? So, so you had asked, when you said uh, the least favorite and most favorite thing, you uh, here you said Gonzaga, and that's why I had to think about it. But in the questions you sent, you asked just of what you do, if I can answer that. Let's do it. Let's hear it. What, at least, at least, yeah, the, your favorite thing and, and least favorite thing, what you do. How about that? Okay. So I, I love getting to work on things that I think are important. And that's when you go work for a company, while it can be nice to be able to say, like, I work my eight hours and then I go home. Um, you're doing stuff for other people. You're doing what other people ask you to do. And uh, that's uh, different from, you know, when you're a professor and you get to choose what you research and you get to choose how you teach and what you teach and have all this freedom to do things that you think are interesting and care about, that's uh, really cool. And then also, I really love being able to teach young thinkers uh, try to make sure, you know, I, uh, I was teaching health economics when I was in grad school and that's one where it's a very political issue. Uh, and then a lot of the issues that I teach about here are also very political. And I think what I come, my main view is like, I don't care what you think, but I do want to make sure that you're thinking about things in a logically consistent way and that you're using all of the information that you have to make the decisions that you do. And I think that's really uh, an exciting thing to be able to help students with. Um, so getting to make a difference and uh, look at things that I care about is my favorite part. And the least favorite part is uh, rejections, getting paper rejections, which I have a number of under my belt. And, uh, you know, sometimes it's hard to convince yourself that things are maybe just like a bad fit for the journal you're looking at, or maybe like your teaching style doesn't fit with what a student likes, you know, that's, uh, that's pretty emotionally difficult. And, you know, imposter syndrome is a real thing, right. but. Uh, if, it, if it eases some of the, the sting, I have the record in Jepson for the fastest rejection. Uh, on a Sunday, desk rejection, 47 minutes from the time I submitted the email and I got, I got the rejection back. So yeah, so try to beat yeah. that, Carlston. So, yeah. Yeah. Very it's cool. Rough, What's that? It's rough. It's rough. It's rough out there for sure. Now, are you a basketball fan at all? Can you follow basketball? Not much. I did no. go to one game this year. One okay. Men's or women's? Men's. Okay. Yeah. The women's are Super fun if you can get, get yeah, out. Yeah, I meant to go to one of those too because I've heard those, uh, you know, can be pretty exciting as well. But I, I've kind of wanted to see the students, the energy from the students, and from what yeah. I understand, they they are uh, at the men's games more. Yeah, a little, it's a little more intense at some of the men's games, but but uh, both both great programs. Well, cool. Well, thanks for joining us. Thanks for hanging out. Always appreciate you. Appreciate what you what you got going on. And uh, um, yeah, thanks yeah. for having me on. I hope that this turns out to be a great podcast. Yeah, do and then after after uh, uh, the hope is to let other people be host. You know, and just start to kind of pass it around if they know someone that's doing cool things or anything like that. So just keep that in mind as we go forward. Okay. okay. Is it supposed to be a 
uh, SBA specific podcast or is it like looking around the whole university? Uh, we uh, It's just SBA specific right now, but I don't think we don't have any rules written. We can write the rules as we want. There is a podcast page at Gonzaga um, where um, the couple, I think law school has one, maybe school leadership, oh, other podcasts. Some are really focused to a specific area. Um, so I think so long as we, you know, don't overlap with any of those, we'll be, we'll be good. So, okay. Okay. Appreciate it. Right. Cheers. Yeah.